The purpose of this activity is to expand the reach of chest content through awareness, critique, and discussion. All articles have undergone peer review for methodological rigor and audience relevance. Any views asserted are those of the speakers and are not endorsed by chest. Listeners should be aware that speakers' opinions may vary and are advised to read the full corresponding journal articles for complete context. This content should not be used as a basis for medical advice or treatment, nor should it substitute the judgment used by clinicians in the practice of evidence-based medicine. Hello and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Dominique Pepper. On behalf of CHEST, I'd like to welcome you to this month's CHEST podcast. My name is Dominic Pepper, and I'm the host of the CHEST podcast section. Thank you all for joining us today for what will be a really fascinating conversation on patient and nodule characteristics associated with the lung cancer diagnosis in patients incidentally detected with lung nodules. Today, we're very fortunate uh, to have Dr. Farhud Fajr as our guest. Uh, Farhud, can you please introduce yourself? Good morning, Yes, my name is Farhud Farja. I'm a thoracic surgeon at the University of Washington and Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center in Seattle. Uh, my clinical practice is predominantly dedicated to the care of patients with cancer, and my research interests are on the use of diagnostic tests and algorithms across the lung cancer continuum. An absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast with us. And to kick us off, maybe you could answer probably the most important question. Why is it so important for us to be able to predict which lung nodules are actually lung cancer? Yeah, indeed, an important question. Uh, so <clears throat> we want to maximize the chances of detecting lung cancer early and treating it with curative intent therapy. And we want to minimize the chances of harming a patient by putting them through a diagnostic evaluation. So if we had a magic wand and it told us at the time of nodule detection that the nodule was lung cancer, we would stage and treat the patient. And um, we wouldn't wait for the early stage lung cancer to progress to a later stage malignancy. We wouldn't wait for a later stage asymptomatic lung cancer to progress to a symptomatic one. And if the magic wand told us at the time of nodule detection that the nodule was benign, then we wouldn't subject the patient or the person to the burden of serial imaging with any ex associated anxiety or radiation exposure. We wouldn't subject the person to the burden, discomfort, and risks of a percutaneous bronchoscopic or surgical procedure. But the problem is, of course, we don't have a magic wand. And um, as a consequence, patients and clinicians have to make these really tough decisions in the face of uncertainty. So there's this assumption out there that if we can accurately assign a nodule, a probability of being lung cancer, then we can make better decisions about how to work up the patient. Now, whether or not that assumption is valid is a subject of another podcast, but um, but it, that all being said, it's just important not to overthink this. And then we, so we say we were going to predict whether a nodule is cancer or not. What we're really saying is we want to figure out the best way to evaluate the patient, maximizing the benefits of early detection and minimizing the harms of diagnostic evaluations. Definitely. Uh, we know that there's millions of patients who have lung nodules, and we need to risk stratify them so that we target those patients who are at highest risk. So let's jump into your study. Why did you perform this study? Yeah. <clears throat> so, 
if you're trying to make a diagnosis, you're in a better position to do so if you have some knowledge about the epidemiology of disease. So we wanted to understand the epidemiology of lung cancer among individuals with incidentally detected lung nodules. So we're talking about basic things like the frequency of lung cancer, the the, the patient characteristics that are associated with lung cancer, the nodule characteristics that are associated with lung cancer, and then the 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 frequency um, at which these factors exist and and what the relationship is with lung cancer and so there are are of course many studies that have already looked at this um, but one of the issues with these prior studies is that they're in highly select populations they draw their cohorts from for instance patients that were referred to tertiary referral centers to a pulmonary clinic to a surgery clinic and it's possible that because of the way they selected their population that it could lead to distorted views of the epidemiology of disease so there's other sources of knowledge uh, about the epidemiology of disease, and that's expert opinion. Um, but again, we're, we're all at risk of having a skewed perspective based on our referral. Um, and then there's also been extrapolation of information from studies of screen-detected lung nodules, but that's potentially problematic because by definition, those individuals are all at high risk for lung cancer. And so again, it could result in a skewed perspective. So there's one prior population-based study that I know of, and it was um, by one of our collaborators on this study, Dr. Michael Gould, and he described the incidence of disease and variation in, in lung cancer over time and age groups in a population-based um, uh, uh, study of people with individual, or I'm sorry, incidentally detected lung nodules. So some of the practical benefits of knowing the epidemiology of disease is um, things like patient education, clinician education, and by that I mean our colleagues in primary care. Um, and this information also allows us to verify or challenge assumptions that are made by experts who create national guidelines, and it can also inform the development of prediction tools like risk prediction calculators. So you're looking to get data that actually drives important decisions, and you decided to um, investigate a retrospective cohort. So maybe you could tell us about your study methods and how your particular study methods address the limitations that you mentioned prior. Yeah, absolutely. So it, the study design is a retrospective cohort study. We looked at individuals with incidentally detected lung nodules by ACT between 2005 and 2015. And the population came from two different integrated health systems. Uh, one is in Western Washington, which is Kaiser, and the other is in Wisconsin, which is Marshfield Clinic. And we picked these two sites in part um, to increase the heterogeneity of our population in terms of where they live, rural, non-rural, but also exposure to endemic fungus, because there are parts of um, Wisconsin that um, are, are exposed to endemic fungus. So um, the, the way that we um, uh, found these individuals with nodules is we actually used Dr. Gould's um, prior research using natural language processing uh, to find an auto, to utilize an automated tool to look through the free text radiology reports, and and this tool was at that time and that iteration was not without limitation. So we actually used that as a screen to find the people that may have had a nodule in the free text radiology report, and then we had a trained 
abstractor look at that radiology report and, and verify that indeed the radiologist documented an incidental nodule. And at the same time, the abstractor also um, collected other information like nodule size and number of nodules. So um, th what this allowed us to do is to, to have a really robust way of um, identifying a population of people with incidentally detected lung nodules. And then in terms of exclusions, we exclude those people that had CTs for other reasons like lung cancer screening or surveillance. We uh, excluded people where, um, for instance, the, um, the the indication for the CT was a fever or infection because um, the guidelines don't apply to those individuals. So um, we had this robust population. Um, the the integrated health systems that I mentioned, Kaiser and Marshfield, they have um, they've collaborated before as a part of a larger network called the Cancer Research Network, and they have harmonized definitions for patient variables, things like tobacco use, things of interest for this population. But the other thing that they have is a linkage to both cancer registries and vital status registries. So we had these really robust ways of measuring the outcomes of patients over time. And in this case, it was looking at who developed lung cancer two years after nodule detection and also um, who was alive or who died within that two-year period. Um, and so what this allowed us to do was to very robustly measure the outcome and have longitudinal follow-up uh, for this group of individuals. Yeah, so that's pretty important, looking at the long-term outcome, and I think two years is a great initial uh, time to follow up. Some clarifying comments um, or questions. Um, so you said that they looked for uh, lung nodules in the text. Uh, what about uh, lung masses, lung consolidation, ground glass? Um, sometimes uh, we find cancer in those patients. How did you all deal with those situations? Yeah, so so we limited the the size of the abnormality from to, from one millimeter to thirty millimeters. So the masses were essentially excluded. Um, and then in terms of consolidation, um, that was part of the training because uh, it is surprising how variable the language is. Um, in radiology reports. Um, uh, and so there was a lot of training on what a nodule is, what consolidation is, what a nodular opacity is. Um, as clinicians, we, I have to say, at least I didn't really pay attention to that because I got to cheat. Anytime I see a report and I didn't understand it, I'd just pull up the images and, and instantly my eyes would know what I'm looking at. But when you're training abstractors. You have to really get into the weeds of of that language, and um, and 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 end up being uh, a contextual interpretation of the radiology report because we did not have access to the images. So, um, th those radiology reports that posed challenges because of the language, they were they were flagged for adjudication uh, by a clinician, which was usually me or or Dr. Gould. Actually, so to clarify, um, you'll have the reports, but not the actual images to verify exactly. or. Okay, yes. gotcha, gotcha. And then in terms of your, so let's turn to your key findings. Um, based on your study, uh, what did you find and uh, how do you interpret these findings? Yeah, so there there are many findings here. Um, I'll, I'll highlight four of them that I think were important. Um, so one of them is that the frequency of lung cancer in this population is low, um, a lot lower than um, what we see in highly select populations, like those studies that um, had were based on cohorts that referred to pulmonary or thoracic surgery had double-digit frequencies of lung cancer. The frequency of lung cancer was a single digit in this study and, um, and below 5%. So 
Um, we, we saw that in Gould study as well. And, um, and what this finding highlights is, is the, the importance, but also the challenge of predicting who has lung cancer. Because from a population perspective, very few people have lung cancer in this cohort. Another finding is the prevalence of prior malignancy, um, which was high. It was 31%. But interestingly, and contrary to what other people have found, uh, prior malignancy was not associated with lung cancer. So if you look at other studies, that that um, that frequency varies from 8 to 40%, depending on what study you look at. And really what the significance is here is that in clinical practice, one out of three patients who show up with an incidental nodule have had a prior history of cancer. And so the the um, the the absence of a relationship between prior malignancy and lung cancer uh, in our study could be confounded by the fact that we weren't able to measure the type of prior malignancy or the time between the last cancer and the nodule detection. Um, but it but this situation uh, poses a challenge for the clinician who is faced with the patient with the incidentally detected lung nodule and trying to determine is this a recurrent cancer or is this a new lung cancer primary or a benign condition. The other finding, um, very much similar to prior malignancy, is the, the frequency at which people had multiple nodules. It was 57% in our study. So um, uh, that finding was also coupled with the absence of a relationship between multiple nodules and lung cancer. So uh, this sort of high prevalence of multiple nodules and no relationship with lung cancer has also been observed in populations of people with screen-detected lung nodules. So the importance is twofold. Again, it's it's common. When we talk about a solitary pulmonary nodule, it's it's actually the minority of patients with incidental nodules that show up with a solitary pulmonary nodule. Most people, a little over half, um, show up with multiple nodules. So that, that ends up being a, a clinical problem for the clinician trying to figure out um, the diagnosis. Um, and guidelines have varied the approach to diagnostic evaluation based on the number of nodules, but that only makes sense if the number of nodules is related to lung cancer. And, and the accumulating evidence is that it, it may not be. So um, that creates some opportunities for us um, in the future and future iterations of guidelines. And and I guess the last finding, which was purely exploratory in, in our study, was um, to create prediction models in this population-based sample of patients, um, because this has not been done before. The prediction models that have been created before have been in, again, highly select populations. And so there's this concern um, that those models may not perform as well in other settings. So this is a hypothesis that came about from our study, given that our models performed reasonably well. And that is, our models might be more generalizable to different practice settings. They may be more reliable across more uh, different practice settings, but we don't know. Um, the models are fairly easy to use. They, you know, the parsimonious model only has six inputs, um, and the and the models are unique in the sense that they also take advantage of a nonlinear relationships, which um, may in part have accounted for the the performance of the models being reasonably well. So, what did um, which characteristics did you find as being predictive of uh, lung cancer? Yeah. So the. Um, there were several, um, but in the models, the, the variables that were used in the models, because those are the ones that um, were the stronger relationships, um, were age, sex, body mass index, um, 
tobacco history, um, nodule size, um, nodule laterality, location, and number. Some of those characteristics about the nodule are actually are, are, are kind of weak associations. So the strongest associations was in the model with the six inputs, which is age, sex, body mass index, smoking, nodule location, and nodule size. And then for the benefit of our audience, so um, w- w- um, what, what components of those uh, variables? So I would assume it's older age. Yeah, so we, the the cool thing about this model is that um, we model the the models uh, modeled continuous variables um, uh, with the flexibility to not assume a linear relationship. So it, they weren't broken up into categories, for instance, for age or nodule size. Um, and and the models and some of the findings that are in the paper actually show some of those nonlinear relationships, some of which are parabolic, others which are sigmoid or S-shaped. So the the, the lung nodule size, for instance, um, you could discreetly put in the value into the model. You could, you know, you, for instance, you could put in um, 10 millimeters um, or 13 millimeters or 14 or whatever. And um, it makes no assumption that the risk of lung cancer goes up linearly with, um, with nodule size. So that's another cool feature of the model. Okay, um, so that's pretty important uh, because uh, sometimes we make assumptions that there's a linear relationship when there isn't. So let's unpack each of those um, variables that you uh, put into your model. So which age group or what, what did the model uncover about age? What did the model uncover about sex? What did it uncover about BMI, about tobacco and nodule characteristics? Got it. And you're, I think what you're asking is about the relationships that we're seeing. So, exactly. um, so in the, when we looked at the factors that were associated with lung cancer, um, not surprisingly, we saw that as age increased, the risk of lung cancer would go up. The, the risk of lung cancer um, was higher in women than it was compared to men. Um, and folks with um uh again not surprisingly folks that used um tobacco in the past either people who um formerly used tobacco or currently use tobacco uh, had a substantially higher risk of uh lung cancer nodule size um as it increased it non-linearly increased and it it had some of the strongest associations um with lung cancer um when we looked at it from a categorical perspective, purely for descriptive pur- purposes, just to give you a sense of um, uh, how much that, how the strength of that association, the, the relative risk of, um, of a, let's say, a 20 to 30 millimeter nodule um, compared to a nodule less than four millimeters was 47. Um, so uh, we didn't look at odds ratios, we looked at rate ratios. Um, uh, but 47, it's, it's absolutely incredible um, how strong that relationship is. Um, in terms of other uh, laterality, we included that again in a model, and, and um, actually not laterally, but location, excuse me, in upper lobe uh, nodules, which has been described before, we also saw a higher risk of lung cancer in upper lobe compared to non-upper lobe nodules. So that gives you an example of some of the relationships, but the strongest ones um, were to former tobacco use, former current tobacco use, that is, um, and people with larger nodules. Those were the strongest predictors of lung cancer. And what does that, uh, what implications does that have for um, diagnosis? Um, 
because one of the challenges that we have is, you know, being able to adequately sample lung nodules in the upper lobe. Um, there's new technologies coming out uh, that have come out in the last year or so, in the last five years, that allow us to get there. But not all institutions have the availability of that technologies. What does your study add to that? Yeah, so it, this study, the, the main benefit of this study is trying to help with that decision. Um, do we pursue a nodule invasively or not? But the, the, this study would not help in the decision with, with what you're describing and how to approach it is specific to a lobe. It, it's, um, that, you know, it, that comes up with the, the, the things that we oftentimes think about, which is are they peripheral? Are they central? Are they accessible bronchoscopically? Um, or sometimes when the when the probability of lung cancer is really high, uh, we we omit uh, a biopsy and we proceed straight with surgery. So those kind of questions the study can't help with, but it, it this study helps um, one step higher level, which is do we pursue invasive uh, diagnostics because the risk is so high, or do we pursue serial imaging because the risk is low? And what this, for example, the the upper lobe is just telling us for reasons that at least I don't understand. And the the upper lobe um, nodules are more prone to be lung cancer than the lower lobe. Yeah, that is intriguing, and I think some have uh, mentioned that um, your blood supply to the lower lobes is uh, supposedly better. That allows better immune surveillance, but that's unclear. Um, why did you not just focus on lung nodules that were eight millimeters or greater? Um, some may say that uh, because you had such a big pool of lung nodules, you, I mean, the your median size was 5.6 millimeters, um, that doesn't really help a clinician. Uh, maybe if you had focused just on those lung nodules that were greater than eight millimeters and then done a subsequent analysis, um, that that would have been more relevant for the clinicians that are practicing. What would your answer to that be? Yeah, you know the 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 probability of someone with a nodule less than eight millimeters is is not zero. So I mean, if we take the patient perspective, um, they they still need some sort of guidance on what to do. Um, and and at those lower risk levels, it's either you do surveillance or you don't. Um, so we wanted to take an all inclusive view of nodules. Um, there is a um, a study that was done also with Dr. Gould and Dr. Vachani that looked at a population-based um, sample of individuals with nodules greater than eight millimeters. So that study's out there, and, and there's a lot of useful information in there. Um, this study, um, you know, one thing that it does is also, again, it makes no assumptions about the relationship between nodule size and and the risk of lung cancer. So in figure one of our study, if you, you look at the... Um, uh, the, the the third panel it it, it depicts that nonlinear relationship between nodule size and the probability of lung cancer and actually again this challenges some of our our preconceived um, notions of at, at what size threshold does a nodule become um, worrisome and so eight millimeters um, we we worry about the risk of lung cancer going up, but eight millimeters also starts to feel actionable from a proceduralist perspective, even from the resolution of pets perspective so eight we're all familiar with eight millimeters, but if you look at this graph actually it's it's um, more in the mid teens that the risk of lung cancer goes up so 
again, this this fundamental study just um, gives us the opportunity to ask the question, well, just because a nodule's, you know, eight millimeters, should we go after it invasively? Maybe we shouldn't. Maybe if we understand the risk and the relationship between nodule size and lung cancer, maybe it's more surveillance and we pull the trigger at a higher size. I'm, I'm not saying that we should do that, but I'm saying this, this study, because it's all-inclusive, including individuals with nodules less than eight millimeters and up to 30, it gives us the opportunity to ask those kind of questions. Yeah, it definitely poses that important question. And some may argue, well, we should have to go for where the inflection point is. And others would say, well, we may miss some patients if we set the inflection point too high. So definitely an intriguing question. One other question I had for you, and this is a question we have to answer to patients every day is, if it's not lung cancer, what is it? Um, based on your study, um, more than 95% of them are not cancer. Are we any closer to getting an answer f- um, uh, to that question? Uh, n- not with our study. Unfortunately, that's one of the limitations of this study is that we we don't know what the etiology of those nodules are. Um, we, we can't attach a name to it. Um, so, there have been other studies that have taken, you know, many other studies that have taken a, a really granular look at this. So, um, and and I would say that some benign conditions uh, actually warrant a, um, more diagnostic evaluation. So I think of sarcoid. So, you know, if you see someone with multiple nodules and they have sarcoid, I don't treat sarcoid. I don't usually work them up. They get referred because as a surgeon, we might aid in the diagnosis of it. But I know there's a lot of downstream diagnostics that that um, are deployed for individuals with sarcoid. So that um, that is something that this study doesn't answer. Um, the outcome is, is is purely dichotomous, and it's either lung cancer or it isn't. And in a way, that's practical, and it aligns with the guidelines, which say follow people for two years, and if it's stable and it's a solid nodule, then you can declare it's benign. Um, but you're right. It doesn't answer the question for the patient, and it is dissatisfying for the patient um, to not know why they have lung nodules. Gotcha. Um, and then, Farhood, you, you, you mentioned that the databases were from Kaiser, Western Washington, or the, or the West Coast at least, um, and then Wisconsin. Um, were you able to get a sense as to whether or not that data is generalizable to other parts in the United States, uh, the Northeast, um, uh, the, the Southeast, uh, uh, the Central America? Yeah, so that's a potent- another potential limitation of our study is that it's not generalizable. In, in a measured way, what we know is it's not generalizable, for instance, in terms of race and ethnicity. Um, but then the question becomes, and we don't have the answers to this, is would we expect um, the the results to uh, to not generalize? We don't we don't know. I mean, if you if you think there's a a racial or ethnic basis to biologically to lung cancer, which by the way, the authors of our study do not. Um, but if you think that's the case, um, then then you know, the, the question becomes, is this generalizable? Because it is a homogeneous population in Western Washington and in Wisconsin, at least the area that Marshfield serves. Um, and and it, I think there's a well-described um, relationship between race and ethnicity and lung cancer, but I, I think at least many of the authors on our study, we believe there's a that's more of a social um, 
um, uh, socially derived relationships. So this study is is not looking at healthcare delivery. And if we were looking at healthcare delivery, then this issue of social determinants of health are, are non-ignorable. Um, if you believe um, that the, the this is looking at sort of the, the biological basis of lung cancer by looking at nodule size and, and things like age, um, then in that way it could be generalizable. But we just don't know. It, it would certainly be worthwhile to um, repeat this study to see if the same sort of relationships hold in more diverse populations. Um, so um, I, I think that's the the limitation of the study and uncertainty of the study. Um, but we think it, it's the demographics are basic enough and the nodule characteristics are basic enough that we're hopeful that it's generalizable. Great, yeah, and I definitely agree. Um, we definitely need more studies. Uh, when more studies support the same data, then um, it makes us a lot more confident about the findings. Maybe you could comment on. Um, and I think you alluded to this already, um, why you think prior malignancy and multiple uh, nodules were not associated with lung cancer uh, mechanistically, or the, what did you as a group uh, think about that? Yeah, there, so there's the difficulty in, in making um, um, heads or tail of the absence of a relationship, because certainly other studies have shown a relationship. And, and I, I will tell you, for us clinicians, it's um, anecdotally, at least I see a relationship between prior malignancy and lung cancer, but the, our study did not um, you know, bear that out. So there's two possible explanations um, that are related to the study and measurement. And one is, we did not measure the type of prior malignancy. Um, so that might be important. Um, the other factor that we were unable to measure was the interval between the uh, prior malignancy and the date of nodule detection. And so in some of the prediction models that have um, come out and some of the guidelines that, that address this issue, um, you know, they exclude people that had a malignancy within five years of nodule detection. And, and maybe for people that had a malignancy beyond five years, um, it, it, it there there's no relationship. I don't understand the biology there. This this study doesn't help us understand a biological mechanism or the absence of one. Um, and, and all we can say is that the results may be confounded by these measurement uh, limitations that we had. But it's definitely worth um, looking in other population studies if if this study is really uh, repeated elsewhere. Agree. And if I would, maybe you could comment on, in your interpretation of the study, you commented on um, that your findings have implications for clinical practice and practice guidelines. Maybe you could share what you think those implications are and how your study um, should alter clinical practice or how we should uh, consider revising uh, current guidelines. Yeah. So, you know, if we stick with some of those findings, I think they're, they're examples of, uh, of how um, the findings could impact clinical practice guidelines, et cetera. So, you know, this issue of prior malignancy, which you just talked about, um, you know, uh, prior malignancy um, is, for some guidelines, an exclusion criteria, meaning um, the guidelines will say if they have a prior malignancy, these guidelines don't apply to these individuals. And that poses a problem for clinicians because, again, a clinician sitting in an office gets a patient one out of three times they're going to have a prior malignancy. So they, they're they going to need some help trying to figure out, is this a prior uh, cancer or is this a new lung cancer? And guidelines can help. Um, 
<clears throat> guidelines instead of excluding patients could potentially provide guidance on how to discriminate between recurrent cancer of a non-lung origin versus a new primary lung cancer. That also might make guidelines really difficult to use. And, um, and thinking about the user of guidelines is important. So another strategy that guidelines could take is, is to say, well, this is a complex segment of the population, and what we should do is refer to a subspecialist in, in either pulmonary medicine um, or thoracic surgery or, even better yet, a multidisciplinary nodule clinic. And so either the guidelines could provide more granular information about the workup or refer to a, a subspecialist. The same thing is true with multiple nodules. So, for instance, the American College of Chest Physicians guidelines um, say that their guidelines are applicable to folks with nodules, um, that, with 10 or fewer nodules, um, but that restriction could be lifted. That's one way the next generation or the next iteration of the ACCP guidelines could be different. Fleischner says, um, or actually Fleischner stratifies their recommendations based on singular versus multiple. But if there's no relationship with lung cancer, you could simplify the guidelines by simply saying, um, these guidelines don't apply to people with solitary pulmonary nodules. They just apply to individuals that incidentally detect in lung nodules. We're not going to stratify by number because there's no relationship with lung cancer, and we're going to be all-inclusive. Clinicians are still going to need help because the clinical issue, of course, is are we dealing with synchronous lung cancers? Or do we have T3 or T4 lung cancer? Is it metastatic lung cancer? Um, is, it, is it metastatic non-lung cancer? Or are we dealing with a benign condition like sarcoid, for instance? And so, once again, the guidelines could actually get really granular and help clinicians how to figure that out. Or if that granularity makes the guidelines so complex that they're unusable, then the guidelines could recommend a referral to a subspecialist or, or a multidisciplinary nodule clinic. It's definitely complicated, and I appreciate you um, letting our audience know the, the factors that they need to uh, consider. Um, Farhood, you've been very generous with your time, um, and I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with us about your very important paper. Um, before we leave, I just want to give you uh, one last opportunity to share any concluding remarks uh, with our audience um, or any summation. Yeah, first of all, I really appreciate the opportunity to share these results um, with the audience, and and I think the um, the the kind of lesson learned um, for me is that that we have not invested enough research funding into this topic. Um, it is fascinating when you start delving deep into this topic. Um, um, the the uh, how little information we have, and um, you know certainly this dovetails with screen detected nodules in some ways. So there there is a lot of growing interest in uh, in either screen or insulin detected lung nodules. I think we need more. Um, funding directed in in this direction, um, I, you know, on behalf of all our investigators, we're grateful to the National Cancer Institute, which funded this uh, project. And I also wanted to conclude by giving a shout out to my collaborators, um, uh, Bob Greenlee um, and Kurt Schoen at Marshfield, Arvind, uh, Rama Prasen and Diana Bust at Kaiser. Uh, Matthew Benegas at UCSD and Rebecca Smith-Beinman at uh, UCSF and, of course, Michael Gould down at Kaiser um, and Sarah Monsell, who was a biostatistician on this study. So this is truly in the same way that clinically we take this on in a multidisciplinary fashion. Uh, in the research realm, we also have to take this on as a multidisciplinary fashion, and, and I'm really grateful for my partners. Thank you.
Oh, thanks, Prohud. Uh, and just to you know, reiterate what you said, uh, uh, lung cancer is a big deal. Um, it kills more people uh, than colon, breast, and prostate combined. And as you said, we definitely need more funding in order to determine which factor, which patients are at higher risk for lung cancer and how do we detect them. So a big uh, congratulations to you and your team for this publication. Um, a big thank you to Dr. Farja for joining us for a great conversation. A big thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Dominic Pepper, and this is a chess podcast.